Welcome to my den. I get super vulnerable on today's episode and you might hear sides of me that you haven't really heard on this show before. My guest today is Mike Normant and he is the author of Coach Yourself Up. So I thought today might be a fun experiment where I could ask Mike to coach me to coach myself up. And this was a fascinating experience. I literally asked Mike to tell us about his methodology for what he teaches in his book to give us a bit of a glimpse into the model of what it takes to coach yourself and then asked him if, you know, as if I was one of his clients to help me really understand how to coach myself. Wow, that was a jumble of words. I Trust me, it'll make sense as we get into it. Mike is just such a wealth of knowledge when it comes to looking inside yourself, whether you're stalled in your career or you're advancing quickly. There's so many aspects of our careers, of our lives, that we brush past on a daily basis without recognizing um, or building and honing this skill of coaching ourselves through the difficulties and through the quick and fast-paced advancements. So before we even get into this, what is self-coaching? So basically, this is how Mike puts it. Who do you talk to more than anybody else? For most of us, the answer is ourselves. Now imagine that you could use those inner conversations for your own good. High-performance coaches know that to make a lasting outer change, you have to do the inner work. And, you know, some of us have worked with coaches who help sort of mentor or who are therapists for us, but this is a different approach. It's it's coaching ourselves through these micro tools on a day-to-day basis. Pay special attention to what Mike tells us. He calls the capital T truth versus the small T truth. It's definitely something you don't want to miss. And we even go in today about the ontological humility and uh, sort of political realm of how coaching ourselves can impact the way that we view the world and the community that we're in. All right, this is this is a fun episode. So buckle yourself up now. Before we get into the episode, I have to share with you once more about the GPT Innovators Cup that is coming up starting July 8th. This is the first ever competition for students to build a business using GPT this summer. And I will be personally mentoring every student who is a part of this. It's open to to anyone ages 14 to 30 who's interested in exploring AI technologies within the context of a safe and supportive community and to really race to build a, a business that can make them passive income. So if you've got a kid who is just exploring AI tech or they're just brilliant and they're on their computer all day finding, you know, cool strategies, but they just don't have the context or a community around them to support them bringing their idea to fruition, this is the competition for them this summer. So if you've got a kid who's interested, uh, go check us out at dskills.io. dskills.io, all the competition details are there. Without further ado, buckle up your seats or your time machines if you're cool like that, and join me in my living room with the amazing Mike Normand. You're listening to Native Digital, Native Analog, the show where we unpack the collisions and commonalities between my generation and yours. 
I believe that if you don't have a native digital on your board of directors, your leadership team, or at least one you pay to pester you like a fly in your ear, your business won't survive. Let's change that today. Mike, I'm so glad to have you. And I can't wait to see uh, how self-aware I am today. I'm kind of, I'm not scared. I'm, I'm kind of uh, <laughs> looking forward to a sort of a self live self-awareness um, coaching session here. But um, before we even dive in, how, how are you? Like what's, what's been up in the world this holiday season? Oh, I'm doing great. Thank you so much, um, Hannah, for having me here. I really appreciate it. Uh, as you know, because I've canceled on you twice, uh, you know, it wasn't that long ago that I had COVID and then second time around, um, we were supposed to meet. I still had some lingering cough that I didn't think was going to, you know, translate well to, to an audio podcast. So thank you for sticking with me and I'm glad that we're finally able to get together. And yeah, the holidays, I swear, it was like a few days ago where I literally looked at the calendar and said, oh my gosh, like how is it possibly December 5th or 8th or whatever it was? And I am I am not prepared for the holidays, if you will. And I think with each passing year, it sneaks up faster and faster. <laughs> <laughs> Did COVID make your voice deeper or has it just always been? No, way? I've always had this voice and I've, you know, uh, yeah, people <laughs> love this voice. People, you know, people that do radio want this voice or I've been pushed many times to go do radio and, you know, um, not as easy as it sounds. But I think 20, 30, 40 years ago, I might have had a shot at a radio career if it was something I was interested in. But nowadays I learned it's more about acting than it is about your voice. And I'm not a great actor, or at least that's a story I have about myself. Oh, please tell me. I want to hear this now. No, no, no. That's I'm, I, You will start, as we have our conversation, you will start to realize that that's language I use all the time, Hannah, Hannah is as opposed to saying, I can't act, I'm now aware enough, you know, listen to me sound like I'm holier than thou, but I now realize that's a story I've made up. There's no big backstory or, you know, got your eyes. Oh, what you tell me? But no, it's just, I realize that that is a belief I have about myself that is not founded on anything other than make believe things I've, I've told myself about myself. So the concept of story is a huge piece of the self-coaching work that, that I'm, advocating in the world. That is fascinating. And to your point about everything on radio being more about acting, I'm curious how, how that'll play out today. But it was it's funny you mentioned that because I was in, oh gosh, where was I? Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, a couple weeks ago. And we were filming, we're out on the street. So with my company, our startup, we just launched a skills. We go out on the street and interview people uh, just I've random seen a couple people. of those. Oh, yeah. you have? Yay. Yeah. So as you know, we go out and just ask people, you know, what do you do for work? Did you ever use your degree? Things like that. And we came across this one guy. I don't think his video has gone live yet. Or maybe I posted it on my story because it was hilarious. But we ran into him and he and his crew were out filming as well. But it was for the Visit Myrtle Beach 
radio slash website, whatever. Campaign, yeah. right. Tourist thing. Did you see this video? Because it was funny. No, I have not. Okay. So the guy is in, you know, he's like six foot five, you know, blonde surfer looking guy. And he's wearing these blue, like super touristy swim trunks, you know, and uh, and flip flops. But he's got, you know, makeup on, comb over hair. Like he looks the part of like legacy media out on the street interviewing, like not authentic at all. Well, he apparently he's playing this character that's called like Bob the Beach Guy or something. And he has to be this this character when he's doing the interviews for Visit Myrtle Beach. So we get into this conversation. I, I have to ask, you know, do you consent to being recorded and then hand the mic to the person? Usually this is before any interview. Well, I said, do you consent to being recorded? And he said, I consent to everything. And then we, anyway, it was just I asked him, you know, did you get a degree? Oh, yes. The College of Myrtle Beach. Uh, what's your degree in beach? And it was just like this very farcical, you know, he was supposed to play the character. He was in, in character. Yeah. Oh, okay. And he asked his producers, you know, before the interview with me, asked them, should I do it in character or not? And the guy, of course, when he's not in his character, seemed super likable. And as soon as he got into this character, instantly, you know, with with when I was doing the interview with him, um, when he was interviewing me, I was very authentically myself and being funny about the reason I go to Myrtle Beach is to make fun of all the tourist stuff. Like, I just love that. I go, <laughs> me and some girlfriends go out there and we make fun of all the, you know, touristy signs and the beach drinks and the overpriced things. And that's how we have fun. And uh, so that's what I told him when he asked me what I love to do about Myrtle Beach and his producer looks over at me and goes, no, 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 you got to re-record that because this is about trying to get people to Myrtle Beach. And I'm sitting there like, Gen Z's going to love this if you publish it. But of course, you know, this farcical actor characterized, you know, um, media is not going to love it. So anyway, long story longer, to your point about just actors, like, it, and I think this goes for what we're going to be talking about today. It is very easy to just walk around as a character of yourself instead of your real self um, or to not even know sometimes what I see my generation doing, not even know that you are a caricature of yourself. Um, that may just kind of become your identity because you you do it for so long. It's anyway. a great insight. It, it, it's a really, I could say, profound insight based on sort of a funny situation, right? Like seeing what, what's authentic, what's not authentic, and and do we start to, if I start to authentically believe that I'm not an actor, just to, you know, pull the thread on that earlier one, at what point does that just become true to me? And it's my truth. And I talk about the difference between capital T truth, you know, the objective truth and what I call small t, my truth. And I think as individuals, we very often take some of our small t truths and believe them to be capital T truths. And all of a sudden, that's, that's who I am. Can you give an example of that? Like how that shows up at work or life or in friendships? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, the, let's see, if I believe that to fit in, in a particular environment, I can't show a particular side of myself or that that thing that I do would be, you know, needing things to be perfect 
is a common one, right? Where mm-hmm. I start to believe that for me to be successful, everything I do needs to be perfect. And where that maybe started out as something that was, I don't know, driven by, you know, childhood and, you know, how I was acknowledged by my parents or my family or my school or, you know, whatever it is, it starts to become something that doesn't, you know, my own small T truth around I need things to be perfect becomes a cap. It's like I believe it to be a capital T truth that says if I'm not perfect, I will not be successful. And that can lead me to put lots of additional pressure on myself to make things perfect. I can beat the heck out of myself when I deliver things that maybe aren't perfect. And at the end of the day, it is not a capital T truth, even though I may have made it. So I'm not sure that's the greatest example, but that's what came out of me. (laughs) I know I love it. And as you were talking, tell me if this is correct, but my assessment of what you just said is capital T truths are more objective truths and and little t truth or small t seem very self-centered like they're very they're very about me not just my truth but it ends up leading down this path of you know i have to be perfect or i have to do things right or i have to mold myself to fit into to other groups even if that's not um naturally me is is that what you're describing yeah that's that is definitely an aspect of it i you know it's interesting so these, I, I refer to these, so you heard me earlier talk about stories, right? And and for me, stories is a, it's a catchphrase that includes things like um, assumptions, opinions, conclusions, beliefs. And so I could have a, you know, sort of a surface level story that says, oh, Bob is not responding to my email, so I know Bob must be mad at me, right? So we, it's an assumption that I've made, and yet... I can, and so this is, you know, so interestingly enough, maybe I'm now contradicting the answer I gave you a minute ago. I can, in my mind, turn that into, I can operate as if it's a capital T truth. Bob is mad at me. And I'm now operating as if Bob is mad at me. I might avoid Bob. I might start telling other people that Bob is sort of a jerk because he, whatever, as opposed to sort of stepping back and say, you know, what what the capital T truth in that scenario is Bob is not responding to my email. I have then layered on my own assumption, which can very quickly turn into a belief. So that I would call that sort of a surface level story, like, you know, on the surface, the deeper stories that tend to be years, maybe decades, often a lifetime in the making, I do say they tend to be more about how we view ourselves or, and not as often, but or the world. And so you may have heard, I I think it was Einstein, right, who said one of the biggest things that drives human behavior is is whether they believe a world the world is a safe place that is filled with good people or it's a dangerous place filled with you know dangerous people and and just think about how one shows up in the world with that what i would call perceived objective truth 
as opposed to recognizing and seeing what does it mean that I hold that view as my small t truth. It, it's right. Like neither one of those things is quote unquote capital T truth, right? It's, sure. it's, it's perception. This is, this is really fascinating. So there's a, someone I talked to recently, we were going through the neuroscience of how a brain is wired to perceive, I guess, what you're talking about as small t truths that can become, in a sense, capital T. <laughs> this is just confusing. So help me wait, help me wait through this if, if I'm not hearing you correctly. But in a sense, you could take, a, or a human, right, can take what they believe about themselves or about the world that may or may not be true and basically make it become reality for at least themselves, maybe not for the world, but for themselves, right? So if you believe it's the whole concept, you know, an easy example, Napoleon Hill, think and grow rich. It's like, if you think about yourself in a certain, you know, lifestyle with a certain amount of money, like you have that goal defined, you're essentially supposed to think your way to a point where you can then, you're, you're naturally acting on the things that get you there, associating yourself with people who will then get you there. Um, so that, that's the like the age old one that we talk about. But I'm curious, do you agree with that story, I guess, where you think about something and then your actions begin to align? Or do you have a different perspective? No, I agree with that to a, a certain point, you know, the law of attraction, the secret, you know, th- those kind of things. I I have some skepticism, um, and yet I think they're they're helpful. I love how and, they and, call it the law, right? It's like it's like it's a an an undisputed fact, and you're like, mm. but anyway, continue. Yeah, no, that's that's sort of it, right? Like I'm I've I've got to believe there are people who have tried that law of attraction and it hasn't worked. I mean, I'm, and there's a lot of success stories where, where it does. And and that's great. And, um, and, and I imagine a lot of that, like, I, I don't know, like, would I be able to step into that work and get over my own resistance, which, you know, part of that is being aware that I have resistance and, you know, can I, put my resistance off to the side and, you know, wholeheartedly try what, what these, these folks are, are preaching. Um, but, but to your question, I absolutely am putting out to the universe, if you will, my intentions and, and believing that is a helpful exercise. Right. And again, as I'm sure all these folks say, you know, it's not about putting that out to the universe and then sitting on the couch and waiting for things to happen. Right. You need to have agency and be pushing yourself forward and taking actions that are moving you toward this thing that you're trying to actualize. Um, but, yeah, I think the I, I think it the more you believe that doing that is helping you to move forward, I think that's a good thing. Right. And it's going to have a positive impact on your progress and achievements. This this whole topic fascinates me. And I'm sh- we, we could probably spend with a couple of different experts on the topic, like a, five people in the room, probably spend a long time talking about like how what you believe about the world or yourself can determine your path. I mean, I think about crazy things like, what do they call them? Ghost pregnancies? 
where you can basically think yourself into believing you're you're having a baby to the point of putting yourself into labor when there's no child in you. Like it's very rare, but things like that happen and it blows my mind of just, you know, the mind is powerful and it's, it's so much more powerful than we give it credit for. (laughs) I I believe in, well, we're going to get into that in a second because I I'm about to get, I'm about to get more self-aware and I can't wait. So before we get into, to you helping me become more self-aware, which I'm really excited about, um, what would you say are some of the key indicators that show up? Like when you're, I would imagine, you, correct me if I'm wrong, but I would imagine when you're walking around interacting with people, it's probably like you're the equivalent of, you know, how architects always talk about when, because they've spent so long in their profession as an architect, they now walk around, they can't see anything that has a, an angle that's slightly off <laughs> or, uh, you know, they, they walk around, they look at a building and think, oh gosh, I, you know, I can't believe it was designed that way. Like their eyes are constantly looking for that. Right. When you, w- being a, a, you know, a coach and, and someone who focuses their whole career and work on self-awareness, what are some of those indicators as you're walking around that, that you notice among people that really show you they're either really self-aware or really not self-aware. Well, I for me, the the number one thing that I don't know triggers me, um, which is is probably not the right word, which I see in in people is most of us talk about assumptions as if they are facts and. And so for me, an indicator is when people start saying like, you know, they just say like, oh, Bill, you know, I can't believe Bill just got up on stage and did that thing. I'm trying to think of an example because this does happen fairly often. Uh, <laughs> You're all good. If someone put me on the spot with this question, I... <laughs> no, it's like I have the answer. I'm not sure how to articulate it. It's when people um, are, are quick to assign responsibility or blame or, you know, hey, this, this project did not come out the way we planned. And it's obviously because marketing didn't do their job. And the question that I would then have if I had time is to, I would ask that person, okay, so help me understand what it is about marketing. Oh, they're just a bunch of jerks and they never, or, you know, is it, oh, they, they were supposed to run this particular campaign and they didn't run it at the time it was supposed to. And so that's why this, this thing fell apart. Um, but it's, it's really helping people start to, you know, to broaden their perspective, to think about, so, you know, is it possible that there was something that the product team might have done? Or is it possible, you know, who, who else was involved here? Is, is there somebody who was supposed to remind marketing to do the right? Like we, we're so quick to jump to the answer. Um, there's a, there's a, there's a phrase, there's, there's a book that I love called, um, conscious business by, by Fred Kaufman. And he has this great idea, um, called ontological humility. And you may be smarter than me, Hannah, but I had to look it up. <laughs> I had to look up ontological. And ontological, in a nutshell, is the 
the branch of philosophy that is interested in the study of reality. And so ontological humility is acknowledging that my perception of reality is not necessarily the only one. And so as opposed to saying Bill did this and so he's wrong or marketing did that so that they're wrong, it's, it's to be like, okay, my perception is that marketing is wrong in this case, but I don't know what I don't know. So can I step back and expand the lens and, and start to get a better understanding? I may be right. Marketing may have screwed this up. This is the interesting thing. The, the, it may be the truth, but when we jump to it without allowing for other inputs and ideas and perceptions... Um, we do a disservice and we frankly are unaware, back to your point, that there might be other things involved that we're not aware of. Okay. That makes this sense. Is, it, do it, it <laughs> okay. does. And I, I, I can't believe I've never come across this phrasing. You said it's called ontological humility. Yep. Okay. So I, I really and by and by the way, you should believe that you haven't heard it. It's not a very common phrase. It's <laughs> okay. something I found in a in a in a book that you know I found that maybe you know in my late forties, early fifties. So, um, but yeah, it's a it's it's an idea that I think has run around in all sorts of different flavors. But that label was I thought it was brilliant. It is, and maybe we should revive it. That is, I I love that term, and it makes me really curious to get your thought on something. So my friends and I frequently have conversations around basic structures in our society, political ones, you know, social, economic, etc. And what we come into the conversation from all different viewpoints understanding is there there's this underlying current we all have to recognize especially when we have never experienced living or at least I haven't living in another country that has a very different undercurrent or framework for their political systems. So, you know, when you and I or, you know, my friends and I come together at the table, it doesn't matter where each of us stand on any topic such as, you know, abortion or gun laws or whatever, like, it doesn't matter the topic. We're most of the time all coming into that conversation with the ontological humility, I had to look down in my notes, the ontological humility to say our perception of reality is based on a fundamental set of facts that we believe to be facts because we've grown up in America. So something as basic or simple, and trust me, this is going somewhere, <laughs> something as basic as or simple as murder is wrong, right? That, that's, a, that's a perspective. Not everyone in the world holds that perspective. You know, you may look at political systems in the Middle East, for example, where it's not fundamentally a human right to to have the right to life, right? So in in America, in you know, in my opinion, a lot of our viewpoints, wherever we stand, are skewed by our fundamental, you know, foundation of reality that sometimes we forget to recognize is in and of itself, you know, something as simple as the question, is murder wrong, is actually in its own sense, a moral standpoint or a, a position we've chosen to take based on our perception of reality. Um, so I wanted to get your thoughts on this. Like, 
from the perspective that, that you stand in when talking about something like ontological humility, um, how do you think like we as a society should approach something like conversations about politics or different perspectives on moral beliefs or religious beliefs if we don't know that even basic things or if we don't recognize that even basic things about our society are based on frameworks that we've also created, you know, as as a society. Am I making any sense? I want to make sure you you feel comfortable answering this question, but this is this is something that's been on my mind a lot lately. Yeah, I I'm I'm going to provide a response and then you can decide if I'm answering your question or not. Um one of the so I'm also a a Buddhist practitioner and and there's a lot of overlap between Buddhist principles um and and some of these ideas around you know reality and in fact couple of things. One of the, one of the things that somebody said once that, that sort of blew my mind and and I now talk about it a lot and so I'm now more comfortable with the idea, but when I first heard it is like, wait, that can't is that right? And and what this person said was he said one of our fundamental challenges or issues as as a species, human beings, is that we believe reality is objective. And he said, when in fact, reality is subjective, we each, and, and again, there's still even saying it, right? There's it's like, okay, because I could, I could imagine a lot of people going, wait, I want to challenge you on that. I want to stick my finger in your chest and tell you why that. But the more, you know, there are some things that we can all agree are that there are objective truths, right? Um, although even the scientists who do physics, right, like they continue to find new ways to explain the universe and learn new things, right? So, but, but, um, you and I are having this conversation. You and I could go to a concert together, stand together for the entire concert. And there was a reality that occurred. The singer was on stage. They sang that song. They 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 winked at somebody in the audience. They like we, and yet each of you, each you and I, had a different experience. Like our reality of that concert, there there was some shared bits, but most in general, it's subjective. So, so to your point, and so and so, sort of an offshoot of that, Hannah, that that I'm still working on really trying to embody and, 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 and live from this place. I mean, let's just take the divisive politics that exist in this country right now. Um, I tend to be more center left. Um, I live in a part of the country, the Bay area in California that is center left, if not perceived and maybe is left, left, left. <laughs> um, that is an influence on my reality and the way that I start to make up what's right and what's wrong, right, for me. And so it's very easy and very common for us to see somebody doing something that goes against what we believe Um And we label them as wrong. 
and we get into this right wrong thinking and and one of the things i used to i still fall into this trap is let's say there's somebody talking about um replacement theory right let's let's just say some of the white supremacy that that's starting to pick back up you know pick back up in this country in sort of a significant way and i look at somebody and i say well if i were him or her i wouldn't do that that way and then, but if I'm really, really honest with myself, and like I said, this is hard. If I step back, wait a minute. If I were him or her, my upbringing, my environment, like I would be acting that way. And so I think there's this, it's, it, you know, and you hear this all the time. It's like, can we take more steps to understand and validate that both of these subjective realities have merit? They've come from a particular way of being or being raised or, you know, the, the, you know, the being in the system, right. Living, living in poverty, you know, well, if I was living in poverty, I would pull up my bootstraps and da, 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 da. It's like bullshit, right? Like I have no idea. I can't like, I can't go and say, what is it like to live in poverty with the, you know, with all the structures in place to make it hard to, to get ahead and and so I think there is this sense, you know, if we could all recognize that we're all sort of coming from our own place, having our own subjective reality. Um, I don't know. Now I'm sort of getting lost in my thoughts. So I'll, I'll just pause and see if I borderline answered your question. No, thank you for that. I appreciate all of that. And I want to highlight something you said, which to sort of summarize this, if I'm hearing you correctly, it seems like there's a place and time for this broadening of perspective that you talk about, right? Like we're based on our own siloed version of reality or what we see, or to your point about replacement theory, the the guy who believes this, maybe it's based on conditioning or or childhood or whatever factors might be playing into it. We need to come together and have dialogue around something that's very controversial and also have courageous dialogue. But there's also a point where, I mean, especially with something like replacement theory, it is right to get fired up if you adamantly believe that that's wrong. Like we point out, you know, the the people in you know, just thinking even back to, of course, the, the age-old example of if you were, you know, living under Mussolini or under Hitler and you didn't do something, like, <laughs> we, we point back, or at least I sometimes point back to those people and think, well, I should have been the one standing up or I would have been the one standing up against what was wrong. But how do I know that that, that, I, that would have been me if I, you know, I, I, I don't? Because the same sort of troubling things are happening all over our country. And, you know, I, I have to ask for myself, where would I stand with regards to that? Um, and sometimes it's, you know, being willing to broaden a perspective. And sometimes it's being willing to say, no, the ob objective truth, whatever that is, where enough of us believe that objective truth, and we're going to fight it, um, or, or whatnot. And it gets, I feel like it gets very 
complex. So to give you a, an example of this, I, um, you and I probably have very different perspectives on this, which is great. And that's why I love having these, these conversations. I'm a Gen Zer, um, and a lot of times people assume that we are all left-leaning. I'm actually much, I wouldn't say much more right-leaning, I'm much more libertarian. So I am a Christian and also libertarian. And so from my particular standpoint, I have a, a friend who, going back to this idea of like the groundwork or the, the base framework, um, she and I grew up in a very similar environment. We had similar shared values, but now, you know, jump forward 10 years, that's no longer the case. And, you know, she and I have a different value set that we're now approaching the same issues from. And what I've had to recognize is if we don't share the same value set, it's very difficult to have a conversation about what's right or wrong, right? So, for example, um, she and I have long conversations, very respectful ones, but also courageous ones about um, she just chose to marry someone who is transitioning, and I fundamentally believe that when someone is transitioning, that they're having an identity crisis. And I would say the same if someone chose to enter a relationship with someone who was, um, I'm trying to think of a parallel, but someone who was, wasn't transitioning genders per se, but let's say it was someone who was having a huge crisis, maybe from a background of alcohol or drug abuse. So let's say they're going through a major life transition. I would say to any of my friends, that is not a good time to get married because they're trying to figure themselves out. Well, from her standpoint, which again, now we have very different values, she would say they're fine. What they're doing is finding themselves more and that's a good journey to be on. I would say that's a harmful journey because I believe as a Christian that there is there is an objective truth. But again, I cannot say because just because I believe there is an objective truth that, for example, you or my friend would also believe that. And so when it comes to these you know, conversations, whether it's political or moral or whatever, it actually makes me really, really angry when I watch people who are also part or at least say that they're Christians and then choose to go after people who are not Christians and point out all the things they think are wrong when instead... For example, from you know my background and from the community I'm in, we should be helping each other and saying only the people who share our value set should be the ones we're keeping accountable. This is not a, about pointing fingers to people outside of our you know our circle and our community and saying they're doing something wrong because, well, honestly, fuck them. <laughs> like the, the as in the people who are are in our community who are pointing fingers outside and saying that the other people should share the same value set when they don't, then you know they are. Um, we're not approaching something from the same standpoint. So who are we to say that they should uphold themselves to standards? It would be like, um, you know, the equivalent of if my friend, let's say I have a friend who is Hindu. And if she were to tell me that I am fundamentally in the wrong because I choose not to, you know, um, celebrate Hindu holidays or whatever, like, again, the the value set doesn't align. And so of course, we're not going to have the same perspectives on other things. Anyway, I'm rambling here. But the point being like, I fundamentally believe, I mean, this this conversation, first of all, is fascinating around subjective and objective truth and how we can become more self-aware because this plays 
into so many areas of life, like what we believe to be true about ourselves, but also what we believe to be true about the world may not even be true. <laughs> no, I, I, I agree with you. And yeah, religion, that is a dicey subject, right? Like, um, it is very interesting to me to see how much suffering in the world over time has been caused by religious zeal. Um, and from somebody who was raised Catholic and is now a practicing Buddhist, um, yeah, it, it, it feels like the religions of the world have these tenets that, you know, let's just sort of sum it all up and love thy brother and thy sister. Okay. And then we don't. So what's, so what's all the finger pointing and you're wrong and you're wrong and you're wrong and you're wrong. And in fact, we're going to start to take up arms against you because you're so wrong. And um, so, yeah, there's something fundamentally in my mind. Again, my perception is that there's something fundamentally broken there that needs to be examined. Um, I'm one of 8 billion people, one of 8 billion perceptions on the topic, you know? I cannot agree with you more. And thank you for going down this road with me because it's, it's one I actually rarely go down. Um, but it is a conversation I fundamentally would say for people who are in that segment, whatever religious zeal they claim to have about whatever their particular religion is, and me being one of those people, I say to all of the fellow people who are in this space, we have to self-check. So like this, the, I believe that is fundamentally the biggest problem. What you just described, Mike, is fundamentally the biggest problem with people who claim to have religious zeal is the finger pointing without looking at their own problems inside in their communities in in the actual statement of love thy brother and then not showing it and i that message that needs to be heard what you just said needs to be heard by every single person on the planet i believe i would love to go down a self-awareness journey with you for myself if you're okay with this um, and just experience, maybe we pick a topic. Um, I think, did you say you have a couple topics to kind of spur to mind what we could? Yeah, yeah, I do. And I know that you like these conversations to be real and raw. So this is something that I might have done like behind the curtain. Um, but I'll do it obviously in front of the curtain for your audience right now, which is just sensitive to time and you know, the length of the podcast and all of those things. And so, you know, one idea is, yeah, we can sort of start down this path and I would keep it pretty high level. Um, and, and the other would be to potentially say we could get back together again at some point and do a deeper dive. And, and I'm fine with either Hannah. Um, but so, yes, I am. We get start hmm? high level. And if we decide to take it further, we can yeah, sure. Too? Yeah, yeah, sure. Sure, sure, sure. So yeah, to your point. Um, so my my self-coaching model is um, based on helping people identify what I refer to as self-limiting behaviors. And my belief is that we all have them. And this idea that we all get in our own way, 
And some of us are very aware of how we get in our own way. Some of us, it's in our blind spot. We're not, we're not aware of it. Um, and so, as you said, I have a list in, in my book called Coach Yourself Up. And I'm just going to, you know, so I have a list I'm looking at right now in my book that's got probably 20 to 30 items on it that I think are fairly common self-limiting behaviors. And so I'm just going to read a couple to you and see if any of them resonate even a little bit. Um, but for example, I frequently interrupt others when they're speaking. And by the way, a lot of times, like I said, sometimes it's harder for us to see our own, but my guess is that when I say these things, you start thinking of, oh, I know somebody that, right? Like, again, these are fairly common things, right? Um, I don't listen to others when they're speaking. I succumb too easily to distractions, emails, text messages, etc. when I'm interacting with others. I'm unable to say no, especially or, or when it's a viable and reasonable option. So people, you know, there's a lot of people at work that just say yes to everything, end up sort of overloaded and overwhelmed. I talk too much in meetings. I don't speak up in meetings. Um, I react too negatively or emotionally when issues arise. I get frustrated too easily, too often, right? These, so these are tangible behaviors that are visible to other people where, you know, if you take the example of the, the frequent interrupter, it's very clear to everyone around that person that if they were able to shift that behavior, it would serve them and help that put them on a path toward more success. Right. So that's the idea is what, what behaviors and, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm a big fan of, cause, cause you know, and you know, talking about Gen Z, I've, I've done many times where I'll be at a company pitching this program and I'll get to the point where I'll say, so here's the example, self-limiting behaviors. And I'll throw up a slide. This is back pre COVID, you know, a room of 20, 30 people, a slide showing up on the wall and, I'd get people taking pictures of the list. They'd be elbowing each other, like whispering, laughing, like, you know, people would raise their hand and go, what if I do them all? Like, you know, and, and so there is something about this, the tangibility. Yeah, I don't even know if that's a word the, the fact that this is a tangible list as opposed to, Hey, think, think of a behavior, think of where you get in your own way. Uh, I don't know, but you start giving people a list and they say, Oh, actually, yeah, I think I don't speak up in meetings. You know, so I don't know. Was there yeah. anything on that list that even seems close? Probably the most, the biggest one for me out of those would be having trouble saying no. But is it, is it an, like, okay, so is it enough that you have, do you have trouble saying no or not really? I would say I've, I've gotten better over the years for sure. Um, I would say it's probably the hardest for me when it's someone who is close, who I, you know, may, maybe the best way to put it is if I've had a relationship with someone for a long time or on and off and my goals have changed or I'm shifting direction in a different way and that person asks for a favor or, you know, a recent example, an interview, but, you know, the content or the direction they were looking for no longer aligns with where I'm putting my energy. And I, I do struggle to say no. It's like, I guess it's, it's less of maybe, uh, being a, a people pleaser or a yes, 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 all the time person to the point where I'm overwhelmed. 
Um, it's more of maybe navigating the transition of friendships from one phase of life to another and being able to say no. Hmm. That's fair. I mean, so are there any behaviors that you have that you're aware of that you're wish you could shift or, you know, again, I know you're not working in a company, so you're not, you know, feedback from the boss or anything like that, but, um, are there any behaviors that, that you're feeling like it'd be cool to shift them, but it just feels too hard or. Yes, definitely. Um, I'd say the one that's most on my mind right now is habit building just being consistent. I have a, I have a very, very difficult time with consistency. And that is with, that's with everything in life. It could be something as simple as, um, getting regular exercise, making sure I'm not going, you know, up and down with, you know, the type of food that I eat. Um, well, hold on, hold on. on. Let's, how about exercise? Can we, can we just focus on that? Sure. So, so just tell me a little bit about that. Oh gosh, <laughs> this is, this is a, a cycle. So I'd say where I go is I, first of all, hate exercise. Um, I, my sister, so I'm one of seven, I'm the oldest. Um, my things were always music and writing and speaking and pretty much anything to do with words. And she was the athlete, you know, she was the gymnast at the gym six days a week from like age seven, that sort of thing. So I think I developed because maybe of comparison over the years of pretty unhealthy relationship with exercise. And so now I struggle to get even on like a 10 minute walk every day or, you know, getting, I, felt really good for like three weeks going to planet fitness in the morning, three or four days out of the week. Um, but I, I think maybe at certain times in the day, I get to the point where I'm like, it's not going to be worth it anymore. If I don't start my metabolism early through exercise, doing it in the morning, it's not worth it in the afternoon or the evening. Um, so anyway, yeah. So my, my consistent or lack of consistent routine is probably something haphazard between a maybe a 10 minute or more walk four or five days out of the week. And some weeks I'm really good about being consistent. If I start on Monday with the right, you know, exercise routine, I get to the gym three or four times during the week. And if I don't start it correct, I go none of the week. It's very, um, up and down. So I'm, I'm, whether or not you've aware of these resources, you know, there's atomic habits, right? James Clear has some really yes. great content around habit building. Um, you see all these books behind me somewhere near the top of one of those stacks is I think it's BJ Fogg has what's the name of that book? Tiny Habits. Um, Tiny Habits. He's out of Stanford. But let, let, so let me share with you, uh, again, maybe hitting the tops of the waves here, um, how my self coaching approach would would tackle this particular thing. Um, First of all, I start from a perspective of getting more clarity on the problem versus jumping to solution. 
And so there's a, a phrase I use, self-observation. That would be the first thing that I would, if you were literally a coaching client of mine and you came to me and said, Mike, I want to hire you to help me exercise more. Um, or Mike, I want to use, that's better. Mike, I want to use your, your self-coaching approach to learn how to exercise more. Do you have 10 minutes to just sort of give me a sense of how that would look? Sure, Hannah, of course I have 10 minutes. Um, but I would say for the next couple of weeks, I want you to start paying attention to what's going on when you're choosing to not exercise, right? You already have said to me, well, sometimes I tell myself that it's later in the day and it's not going to be worth it. Or, you know, so there, there, you were already aware of some of those, let's just say, stories you tell yourself, right? And you may believe that, yeah, that's it, Mike. Like, I know my story. Or you might say, you know what, Mike, this sounds like an interesting exercise. I think I am going to take a couple weeks and just start seeing if I can get more clarity. Like, understanding there's an old engineering phrase, you know, what is the as-is situation? Let me get clarity on that before I start to move into the to be or desired situation. And so as you pay attention, and I would encourage you, you know, once or twice a week to take some notes. And it could even be, again, when people are starting this, is it could be that you put something on your calendar for Tuesday and Friday that's just a reminder that says to you, like, hey, what's been going on for you this week vis-a-vis not exercising? And starting to capture some thoughts like, oh, yesterday I almost went for a walk, but here's, here's what happened. And what happens, again, neuroscience, as you start to self-observe these things, the brain goes, oh, you want to start paying attention to why you're not exercising? I will start bringing that to your attention more quickly. So instead of it start to be a forced exercise around take some notes two days a week, You'll, your brain will start, it'll, you'll start to be aware in the moment, like, oh, I'm choosing not to exercise and I'm, and I'm telling myself that story about it's too late in the day. Or, oh, I've got this other story that I hadn't really been aware is in there. And it, it, you start to get this base of, of information and knowledge about the situation. And then the idea is once you have, once you believe you have a pretty good grasp on the stories, frankly, they're in the my behavior change model says underneath almost all of our behavior, there are stories, right? I don't speak up in meetings. Well, because if I do, people will see that I'm dumb or right. Like, like there's some so I would never tell you go start speaking up in meetings. It's like, no, go start figuring out why you're not go start figuring out what it is you've you believe that is preventing you or, or pushing you away from doing exercise. And then, the, the, by the way, that's the second step of the self-coaching path. There was a first step on managing attention, um, which has to do with, you know, being present and really being able to focus your attention. Because if you can't really focus your attention very well, it's hard to self-observe. But there's self-observation. And then once we have a pretty good grip on what we think is going on story-wise, then we move into the third step called being responsible, response hyphen able, 
the ability to choose an intentional response. And there's a series of questions that I have in the book um, that allow a person to challenge their stories, right? And it starts with, and you may have heard this flavor because this is the first question of a lot of these kinds of models, which is, how do you know that to be true, right? How do you know it's true that getting exercise later in the day isn't really going to have the benefit or, or whatever it is? And then in theory, we get to a point where we start to acknowledge, well, I don't know that it's true. <laughs> I believe it, but I don't know. And then a question says, well, what, what might you do differently if you didn't believe that were true? Which opens up the possible, well, if I didn't believe that, you know, then I'd probably go take the 10 minute walk. Um, do you think it would serve you to act that way? Hell yes, I've been, I need to walk. And then the last question, which is important, is, well, how will you experiment with acting differently? And what I love that question is, A, it leads to an action item. It's not, might you experiment, or what? it's how will you do it? And then the word experiment is really important um, when we're changing behaviors that sometimes have been with us for a long, long time. If I, a scientist would tell you that there's, there's never a failed experiment. An experiment yields information. So it may not give us the result we want. I may take a walk and find out that it really didn't help me later in the day. Um, but it's not a failure. You learn new things from that. And the other thing that goes with that is I would just say one of the other mantras. So I got a couple mantras that I'll just get in here. One mantra is you have to do the inner work to make a lasting outer change, right? The new year's resolution approach to change of just go make a surface level change doesn't work on, on January one, Hannah, you can't say I will start walking four days a week and expect that to stick. You have to find out, what is it inside of you that is, is holding you back? And then the second mantra is small shifts lead to big changes. And I think that's a part of, you know, James Clear would, I think, agree with that, right? The atomic habits, like start small. And so even when I heard you say, you know, sometimes like, yeah, I do. I do it four days a week and da, 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 da. Like if, again, I would suggest, you know, can you do one day a week? Like, can you do, you know, pick... The, the, the bigger we make it, the more like the easier we set ourselves up to fail, the more, you know, that we push too hard. And the idea is if I start doing it one day a week and it starts to feel good or, you know, what the benefit is like, OK, so I think I could do two. Right. And then the next thing you know, it might take longer. But next thing you know, you're like four days a week walking. It's like, oh, wow, this is this is cool. Um, so anyway, that's. I realize it wasn't coaching. Like I'm not interacting with you. Like this is not how a coach interacts with a client. There would be a lot of asking me at me, asking you questions and listening to your answers and what have you. But this is me describing how the self coaching approach that I'm advocating would, would lay out for somebody with, you know, the exercise question that you just asked, if that makes sense. I'm going to go take a walk. <laughs> no, seriously, thank you for that. That's really, really helpful. And to have that 
framework is really helpful too. So let me make sure I got this down. So you said number one is managing attention, right? And then number two, self-observation. And number three is being responsible. Did I get those right? Correct. Yep. Okay. I'm going to hang them up on my wall, but this, that was gold. Thank you so much. Um, we You're are welcome. getting close to the end of, of time here, past the, past the time here. So um, do you have any final thoughts on self-awareness to leave us with? You know, what, what called me to this work later in my life, in my late 40s, a number of things happened, um, including losing my mom, and sort of led me to that, you know, proverbial WTF moment around, you know, what am I doing with my life? And that, no regrets, but doing some, frankly, unplanned personal growth work that led me to these con concepts and helped me realize, so if I had a story that I'm not a risk taker, and it wasn't, and I would never have used that language before, I would just tell you, I'm not a risk taker, fact. I am not a risk taker. And so, no, can't start my own business. Like other people do that. People that are more comfortable with risk. And so as I started doing this work and recognized that I lived 47 years of my life with this story that I believe to be a fact, it, it really made me think like, wow, like what, what, might my life have been like had I learned these concepts earlier in life? Had I learned this notion to challenge my own thinking around my beliefs about myself and the world? And again, no regrets, but that's, it, it's like, yeah. And, and I do think that that story piece, like starting to realize how much of our lives are made up and and, uh, and based on assumption and opinions and conclusions as opposed, you know, that we then sort of operate as if they're facts, you know. So I, I would just encourage all your listeners to start to really think about, you know, where might you be getting in your own way? Where might you be, you know, what do they say, you know, putting, keeping your light under a bushel as opposed to letting your light shine? Like, um, world needs more light shiners, you know. So anyway... I don't think that was all that articulate, but it's, it's, it serves the purpose of letting people know. And by the way, when I was 47, I was the head of learning and development for the, at the second company in a row. I was relatively self-aware. Myers-Briggs, like I, you know, I had no reason to believe that I wasn't self-aware. And boy, was there a lot of ground in there that was just fodder for for growth so i'm i'm just excited to help more and more people start questioning and thinking about these things you know it's exciting thank you so much for that and for your vulnerability and your story and i think so many people are gonna resonate with that just like i did so thank you for the work you're doing and you are welcome back anytime <laughs> this is a blast thank you hannah really appreciate it really enjoyed the conversation you're listening to Native Digital, Native Analog, the show where we unpack the collisions and commonalities between my generation and yours. 
I believe that if you don't have a native digital on your board of directors, your leadership team, or at least one you pay to pester you like a fly in your ear, your business won't survive. Let's change that today.